Hey, when does the show start? Hey, wait a minute. <gasps> First, let's hear from our sponsors. Oh, okay. In just a minute. They don't call Mad Dog Manny for nothing. I'm talking about Manny Aurora, who visits the Bailey Show podcast a couple times a month. We talk defense, criminal law, right? That's what he does for a living. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, but practices nationwide. Handled litigation in 19 different states. Any questions that you might have for Manny Aurora, you can either shoot it to him personally at his law firm, theaurorralawfirm.com, or you can call our hotline and leave us a voicemail for the next visit from Manny Aurora. Oh, Mad Dog Manny Aurora, 404-369-3825. As a former prosecutor, they at the Aurora Law Firm understand the other side of the case. Top 100 national trial lawyers at the Aurora Law Firm, specializing in criminal law. If you need them, you need to get a hold of them today. TheAuroraLawFirm.com. And again, you got any questions for Mad Dog Manny Aurora, next time he stops in the studio, get a hold of us, PodcastTheBS.com. Look, doing a new kitchen or bath, that's a big undertaking, right? So you want to go to somebody that's like a one-stop shop, like UCI Kitchen and Bath. They've been Atlanta's number one cabinet, granite, and quartz fabricator and installer for the past 20 years. That's what I'm talking about, a one-stop shop. Uh, They provide the installation of whatever you buy. Speaking of, you mentioned the BS, the Bailey Show podcast, and you're getting 10% off your regularly priced countertops. That's a nice little savings, right? You can visit the Norcross, Georgia showroom location. Let their design team transform your kitchen and bathroom into a beautiful and functional environment to fit your personality. It's just upping your property value. You can get with all the latest trends because they got them right there on the showroom. Servicing all of Georgia and parts of Alabama, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Florida. How do you get a hold of them? Very simple. UCIGranite.com. The letters U-C-I, the word granite.com. I love people. All right, all right, all right. The BS presents Let's Talk To. People are strange when you're a stranger. I cannot wait to see who it is. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. I hope it's Frank Sinatra's ghost. Oh. Podcastthebs.com. It's better than radio. You're going to love this guest. Uh, what an amazing story and a great lesson for those that suffer for P, uh, from PTSD that you're about to learn here. Uh Jason Kander, former Army intelligence officer, has an amazing new book, Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. And Jason, you are the poster child, and I say this in a positive way, of a guy that recognized that you had some things you needed to deal with and you had to put a huge successful career on the back burner because of this. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's not the not the role in public service I envisioned for myself when I started uh, poster child for post traumatic growth, but hmm. you know, it seems to be helping people. So I'll take it. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. In, in order to help people, um, I mean, we're all put on this earth, depending on I guess on what and you, what you believe. We all, I believe that we all have at least one purpose, and it might not be the purpose we think. We're supposed to be put on this earth for, 
but we kind of figure it out as, uh, as, as we get older. So Jason at one time was uh, touted as the next um, big guy in the Democratic Party. Even President Obama put you over as the guy. And you, 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 everybody was talking about you. And at that time, Jason, you were thinking that this was your purpose on earth, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I was uh, pretty resigned to the idea that I, I was supposed to live a, a short life of consequence that would matter to others and not really be experienced by me because I was, you know, I had pretty bad undiagnosed, untreated PTSD for about 10 years. Uh, and I, you know, just kind of, I just did that soldier thing. I just drove on. Um, and the truth was, is that I, I was just deteriorating and, and it was something that I ultimately needed to address. I, I've had some friends that serve <clears throat> that suffer, uh, still to this day from PTSD, um, all getting help talking to somebody, but your time in both Afghanistan and Iraq, correct? Both places. No, I just did Afghanistan. You just did Afghanistan. At, at what point in time was it then and there while you were still active or was it when you got back that you realized you had it the first taste of, I got, I got something I got to figure out. Well, you know, for me, uh, it's funny. I, I didn't, I didn't detect any issues at all while I was overseas. In fact, while I was overseas, I just thought, man, I, I can't believe I'm getting the opportunity to do this kind of wild stuff. Um, you know how it is. Sometimes it's scary and sometimes you're just bored uh, and that kind of stuff. But I, I just remember thinking, wow, the, I can't believe I'm getting to experience some of this stuff. Uh, and then I got home and I started to have some struggles. Like uh, initially it was things like um, I had this twitch that developed in my, in my eyelid. Uh, I had, I started to have some nightmares and things like that, but I figured, uh, you know, I mean, I just got back, like probably this is normal and it's going to go away. And then what would happen is, is certain parts of it would either go away or evolve. And then I would tell myself this story that was like, Oh, it's, it's better now. And then, and then it would change into something else. Like the nightmares became night terrors, but eventually they didn't take place in Afghanistan. They took place here and I wasn't always in the military in them and so I was like oh well they're not they're not related to Afghanistan is what I told myself and so I always had this story I could tell myself combined with the fact that I felt like I you know like a lot of veterans I felt like I hadn't done enough so I was constantly discounting my own service and trying to convince myself that whatever was going on with me it must not be PTSD because I didn't do enough to get PTSD I thought um, and so it wasn't until about 10 years into it that I, I didn't even get to a point initially where I was like, this is PTSD. I just came to a point where I was like, I'm exhausted. I got to figure out what's going on with me. And so my big solution was instead of running for president, I was going to uh, run for mayor of Kansas city, my hometown, which the campaign was going great, but I was just getting worse. Um, and so that's when I, I called the veterans crisis line and, that's when I finally was open to the idea that, yeah, this is connected to my service and I need to address it that way. One, one of the things that you, that would happen to you that, that I think I saw in an interview that you did was that when you would do speaking engagements, you would assess the room. Um, now it's kind of a guy thing to do, you know, military or not military, you know, especially this day and age, you're looking around, but you did it to an extent where you went and looked everybody in the eye and tried to assess a, a problem, you know, who's going to be an issue for me. If there will be an issue that paranoia 
is a symptom of PTSD, right? Yeah, I came to understand it as what it's called when I went to therapy, which is hypervigilance. And, you know, for me, uh, the way I ended up with that uh, symptom, I guess, is, you know, as an intelligence officer, I was going out and I was I was collecting a fair amount of intelligence and I was doing it in, in meetings with individuals where I'd be outside the wire for hours at a time, just me and my translator usually. Nobody really knew where we were, so nobody was coming to save us if things went bad. And we were meeting with people who were pretty unsavory characters. They were the kind of folks who hung out with the people we were investigating, and in some cases they were the people we were investigating. So you, there was always the possibility you were walking into a trap. So I you know, I became very accustomed to, uh, you know, knowing where all the exits were and, and thinking about who all was in the room with me. And if things went bad, you know, could I shoot my way out? How many people between me and my vehicle, once I get out of this room, that kind of stuff. And fortunately I, I never had to do any of that, but just being constantly, you know, vigilant and prepared for that has an effect on the brain. And so then when I came home, my brain didn't, really accept the idea that I was safe. And so it was still wanting to do these things, wanting to constantly assess the threat. And so I would get up, you know, to give a speech in a room of a thousand people, but for me to really feel comfortable and to do it well, and I was pretty good at it, but to really, to really be able to lean into it, I had to go and shake every hand and kind of look everybody in the eye, which was interesting because, you know, I'm a people oriented person. I'm an extroverted person. I draw a lot of energy from people. So I was, you know, 50% of it was that. And the other 50% was just wanting to feel like I had assessed the threat. And it ended up earning me sort of this reputation as one of the hardest working people in politics. But the whole time I knew, like, you know, I'm just trying to get comfortable by getting a look at everybody here. Yeah. Now, did you find out in this journey, and, and maybe you discussed this in, in your book, Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD, that not every what do we call them? Symptom thing that you had that you couldn't answer is associated with PTSD. Were there, was it associated with something else in your life that might not be as bad as you thought it was? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's always some, there, there are some things that I've dealt with in therapy where, you know, my therapist has said, look, uh, I think this is probably related to PTSD, but it's, some of this, some stuff is just, you know, your personality. Right. So like sometimes, uh, I like, like, like one of the big things I worked on in therapy was, um, being able to be present with my family and like feel present in the moment without an adrenaline rush. Right. Because, uh, you know, as other combat veterans know, I'm sure like when you have been overseas like that, like the adrenaline level, there's a, there's kind of an addiction. There's a need to sort of replicate that at home. And for me, I was doing that, you know, by giving big speeches or big interviews. And that was really the only time I felt present in the moment. And so now I'm much better at that because I've dealt with the underlying trauma, but there are still times when, you know, something will be bothering me that has nothing to do with Afghanistan, nothing to do with my trauma. It just, something happened in some interpersonal relationship that's upsetting me and it'll take me out of my own head and I'll have trouble being present with my kids. And, you know, my therapist has helped me understand that, uh, that happens to everybody. But the advantage I have is I've been through this therapy. So now I have some tools to deal with that. Even if it has nothing to do with PTSD, I have, I have some tools that, that are useful to me. You know, what, is it a let, I think I read 11 to 20% of those that served in Afghanistan and Iraq have PTSD. That's that's a pretty big, big number. 
And and PTSD is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Jason, but it, it's it, like people think, oh, it's this new buzz term that's just flying around. But think about, you know, it was almost a joke. Actually, it was a joke for those that served in Vietnam. Oh, flashback, you're crazy. That's PTSD, right? It just wasn't oh, yeah. called PTSD. Yeah, and not only that, like, I mean, the population as a whole, there's an awful lot of people who have experienced trauma. I mean, you don't have to. And one of the things I, I lament a little bit is that, you know, it's while it's great that uh, a lot of progress has been made with regard to the stigma uh, for veterans and mental health, it worries me that sometimes I feel like we've given license to veterans to deal with their mental health, but we haven't really done it for other people because you don't have to have been to Afghanistan to have trauma. I mean, trauma could be anything, right? It could be a bad divorce. It could be a car accident or surviving cancer or losing a loved one. I mean, there's so many things that, you know, you can get stuck in. And so one of the things I was really adamant about doing with this book is while it is a book told from the perspective of somebody who, you know, my trauma came from my deployment. Um, I, I was careful to make sure that there's a lot of lessons in here that people can take regardless of where their trauma came from. Because, you know, look, I spent all this time trying to rank my trauma out of existence, telling myself, well, you know, I got friends who, who got shot. I got friends who, you know, this happened to, or that happened to. So, you know, that's so much worse than mine. So therefore my, my, I can't have PTSD or I, I, you know, I felt bad about treating it, that kind of thing. But I realized that that cascades down because there's people all the time who come up to me and they tell me with what they've been dealing with. And then they'll say, but I, I didn't go to war or anything. And I'm like, that doesn't have anything to do with it. Right. Everybody knows somebody who they think went through something worse, but that actually has no bearing on anything because our brain doesn't know what they experienced. It only knows what we experienced. How important is it for those that suffer from PTSD or think they're suffering from PTSD to recognize that it not only affects them, but it affects their family and their friends? And that might be the saving grace of somebody who's got, you know, that macho thick skin saying, I don't need help. I can do it. Do it for your family or your friends. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that's ultimately, I think, what happened with me in a lot of ways is that, you know, I, I, I question sometimes whether it's like a macho thing or and like for me, it was like a military thing where the military had taught me, hey, what you did was no big deal. And the really the reason they teach us all that is because they want to make sure we'll keep go keep doing frightening or difficult stuff, which I get like when you're in the military, that's important. But once you get out, nobody's like, hey, actually, that was kind of wild. Like you might need some help. <laughs> You know, nobody deprograms you from that thinking, but I could see the way it was affecting my wife, the way it would ultimately probably affect my kids. In fact, my wife ended up with secondary PTSD, which is a thing we didn't even know existed until I went into therapy, uh, which is to say, without going to Afghanistan with me, she ended up with a lot of the same symptoms because she's living with a person who's having these night terrors and telling her about them, a person who is, you know, hypervigilant about safety all the time. And that rubs off on somebody when you when you live with them. Um, and so she ended up having to go get help herself. In fact, in the book, every chapter includes uh, about a page or two that's a first-person passage from her about her own experience uh, living with me. So it's, it is worth doing for the people you care about around you. Well, I've seen it. You know, my wife, uh, I'm a stepfather to her kids and our, um, our daughter uh, lost her father serving. And, oh, geez. And every year, you know, even though she was a baby when he passed, obviously she was not. 
uh, every year in, on that in that month, I know what to expect. You know, after mm-hmm. being with them for ten years and in their lives for ten years, and I got to be honest with you, I I grew up with that push it to the side mentality that was pushed down from the boomers. And I'm the athlete, the football player, the tough guy. And, you know, you can get through it and you can get past it and stuff. But as I got older, I started to realize that that's not the case. And everything you're saying right now is spot on in 110%. You know, there's no harm to getting help. There's harm when you don't get help. Yeah. And you know, the, uh, like the football example is a great example, right? Because like when you're playing football, if, if you broke your leg, uh, but you knew somebody who had lost their leg doing something else, you wouldn't be like, well, look, my buddy lost his leg. All I got is a broken leg. I'm going to ignore this, (laughs) you know, I'm going to, and if you did, if you were like, I'm going to walk this off, like after a a few years, your leg would be mangled. Like not only would you not be able to play football, you wouldn't be able to walk, right? Well, that's, I mean, PTSD is just an injury. It's an injury to your brain. It's no different, you know? So, like, before I went into the Army, I was being dumb and playing a game of pickup football with my buddies, and I tore my ACL. And uh, and so I had to go and get, you know, reconstructions, or I had to get my, my ACL uh, repaired, and then I had to go uh, to physical therapy. So what I did with my brain after the Army is as if I went into the Army without getting surgery, without getting physical therapy, and I just tried to hack it on a leg that didn't really work for for eight years. And if I'd done that, like I wouldn't have been able to walk or let alone, you know, complete the training. But so when you, when you sustain an injury to your brain, like I did, uh, you know, to your mental health, like I did, and then you don't treat it. It's the same deal. I just tried to walk it off and, and I just made it worse. I wrote this book because this is the book that I feel like if it had existed, I'd have read it 14 years ago and I'd have got help for this injury then. And it would not have have gotten as bad as it did. No, uh, I had the same um, occurrence happen with my dad. My dad had PTSD. He's an Army veteran. He retired from the Army as well. And I know for him, his kind of aha moment when he finally decided to get help was my little stepbrother uh, went into the room to ask him for some cereal or something. And my dad has suffered from PTSD pretty much my whole life, but, but he didn't recognize it either. But his aha moment was my little brother touching him to get cereal and he jumped out of the bed. He always slept with a knife beside him and he mm. put the knife to his throat and he was like four years old. And, yeah. and that's when he kind of snapped out of it. And I screamed at him to, to wake him up. And he finally decided to like, go get help. Did you have something happen to you? That was kind of your aha moment where you knew, okay, I have to go get help like today. Well, first, can I ask the rest of the story with your dad? What happened after he got help? Um, he has to be on medication. So he has pills that he will have to take mm-hmm. for the rest of his life because he, he has very severe PTSD. Yeah. And Sounds even like now, it. yeah, he can recognize when he's starting to have an episode, he'll be like, uh, I need to go get my pills. <laughs> so he, he, he has to take those. But he's doing well, it yeah, sounds yeah, yeah. like. Yeah, yeah. He's, that's he's that's well. great. Yeah, um, for me, you know, I guess the – I don't know if it's an aha moment so much as like a reveal for me. Like I had been having, you know, uh, all sorts of symptoms for, you know, a long time. Like I went about almost 11 years without a good night's sleep because I just had night terrors pretty much every night. Um, and, and a bunch of other symptoms, right? Um, like my son knows, uh, you know, dad doesn't like it when people surprise him, (laughs) you know, like don't like dad, dad doesn't play that game. Right. So, so I, I, absolutely. I I get that. My, I, 
you know, when I was Secretary of State of Missouri, you know, nobody I worked with in politics had known me before I deployed. So they didn't know any better. They just were like, well, the boss doesn't like it when people sit behind him in a meeting. Like to them, it was just a preference. Like there was no way for them to know. Um, so for me, what happened was uh, I kept telling myself for years, like, all these reasons why it wasn't related to my service, all these reasons that it couldn't be PTSD, just trying to just convince myself. And then uh, I got to a point where I, I just was at kind of rock bottom. I'd run out of ideas. I was getting worse faster all of a sudden, which scared me because I'd been getting steadily worse for a decade. But now over this period of a few months, I was, I was really getting worse faster. And so I ended up calling uh, the Veterans Crisis Line. And when I first called... I really was sheepish about it and felt like, you know, they're probably going to tell me this is for people who really need this line. Like, you know, don't like keep this channel clear sort of thing. Uh, and you know, at that point, the only person I'd ever talked to about my suicidal thoughts was my wife. And so when the woman on the other end of the line asked one of her very first questions, if you had thoughts about hurting yourself or others, and I answered it honestly, um, I got really emotional. And then, and then what happened was the, and then she talked to me about my service and the way she talked to me over the course of a few minutes, I could tell from the tone of her voice that I did not sound any different than anybody else she had talked to in that job ever. And that was kind of my aha moment when I realized, okay, this lady's not treating me like I'm any different at all. And so I ended up going and Googling PTSD. Now I had done that many times, but always to kind of convince myself that I didn't have it. So I'd find some little thing and be like, I don't know. See, see that, that's why it's not me. But, but she had opened my mind to it. And then I, that was the first time I read it with a truly open mind. And it was like someone had written it about me. Um, and that's what prompted me to, to say, I I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go get help. How did your wife handle it leading up into this phone call to the veteran crisis line. Uh, I think it's important for you to talk uh, about how to support somebody. There's, there's a, there's a method in relationships that's unhealthy when you continuously jab at someone. And instead of just setting the record straight, looking them in the eye, this is what's going on. Just little digs. That's not, that's not helpful. Right. Hold up. Wait a minute. Let's hear from our sponsors. Watkins Law Firm, trial and litigation attorneys. So if it's personal injury, wrongful death, contracts and transactions, landlord and tenant disputes, or just general civil litigation, Watkins Law Firm dot LLC is where you need to go. Get a hold of Tyler Watkins, Watkins Law Firm dot LLC. And here's Tyler's tip of the day. So get this. It's easier to sue someone if their dog injures your livestock than it is if it injures you. If you're attacked by someone else's dog, you can only recover from the owner if you can show the dog had previously attacked someone or if it was violating a leash law. However, if that dog injures livestock, then you don't have to show anything. Amazing, isn't it? Get a hold of Tyler Watkins, WatkinsLawFirm.LLC, serving all of Georgia. Next time... Talk to Tyler. Help you help your business get to the next level. And you do that by incorporating create graphics in there. Whether it's vehicle wraps, corporate events you might be having, interior, exterior events, graphic design and apparel. Create Graphics is a full-service graphics company that specializes in graphic design, wide format printing, and graphic installation. 
excellent customer service where every project is going to get that one-on-one experience from start to finish. CreateGraphics.net, C-R-E-A-T-E-G-R-A-P-H-I-X.net, or you can call 770-369-9962, 770-369-9962. Tired of ants on your countertop while you're cooking? Can't go outside without getting eaten by mosquitoes? Uh, Give Inspect All Pest Services a call. They've got everything you need to get rid of all that stuff just mentioned. Whether it's ants, roaches, fleas, or ticks, Inspect All has got you covered. With their year-round pest treatments, live without the worry or hassle of pests. Give Inspect All Pest Services a call today, 770-483-2420. 770-483-2420. Mention the BS. Get your first initial service for free. And back to you, Jason. Yeah, you know, it's really hard. I think um, supporting somebody who's having trouble with their mental health is one of the hardest things to do. And, you know, we got together, my wife and I have been together since we were 17. So we were just kids, you know, and when I deployed, um, you know, I was 25 and uh, we just didn't know anything. And and I was a reservist. So, you know, and I don't know if there were a lot of other services or, or support for for spouses in active duty, but we certainly had none. Like there was, you know, I got no, and I think this was definitely true for active duty as well. I got no mental health training prior to going at all, but also my wife had nobody to explain to her. Here's what might happen when he comes home. Here's what you can expect. Here's what you can do for your own mental health. There was none of that. So, uh, you know, we were guessing. And so one of the portions in the book, um, where my wife, you know, writes in first person is she talks about the first time I ever talked to her about having suicidal thoughts. And she, she writes that she handled it completely wrong that, you know, you see all those memes of how to, uh, you know, how to be supportive of somebody in that situation. You always assume that's what you would do. Uh, but then what really happened is it's just frightening, right? Like we had a son already at that time. And here I was, you know, saying that I might check out of this deal. And like, she got angry and, and then I ended up consoling her and cause, and we didn't know, we had no idea that that was not the way to handle it. Neither of us did. And so that is another reason that we wrote the book is to, to kind of, you know, throughout the book, Diana comes in in the first person. And, and one of the things she does is she points out, here's what I should have done at this moment. And here's what I would do now. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like, cause I get the question a lot of like how, you know, people will say to me, you know, I have a brother-in-law who served and he's dealing with this or, or just had a trauma and is dealing with this, but, but he's not getting help. What do I do? And I always tell him, look, ultimately they're going to have to make the choice to do it because even if you force them into it, they've got to be a willing participant. They've got to invest in the idea and invest in the program to get better. Um, but what you can do in the meantime is you can just really demonstrate that you care and you can try really hard to do it in a way that doesn't show any judgment. Because if you, if you try and convince somebody that they are having, that they're struggling with their mental health and they need help, well, they're already, at least speaking for myself, I was already in a state of mind where, I'm going to take that as an attack on me. Right. And so I'm going to get defensive and I'm going to argue back and I'm, you know, and all that kind of thing. Whereas if, if you just, and my wife oftentimes did do this well, if you're just caring and you genuinely want to know more about how they're feeling and what they're experiencing, that can sometimes help them figure things out. That's good advice. A really, really good advice, especially for, People, you know, like my mindset used to be, you know, it's, it was just like, you just didn't get it. You know, our son is on the spectrum, you know, and I just, 
Uh, at first, I didn't get it. I was like, you know, he, he's not he knows right and wrong, you know, it's like, he didn't understand mm-hmm. it. So it, it, it's, it's a learning curve for a generation. And I think as uh, the generations pass, it'll, it'll be more acceptable as far as understanding other people and their, what they're going through. Nate, you have a question for uh, Jason, please. Yeah. So with uh, PTSD, can you ever be cured of it or is it like an addiction thing where, or like alcoholism where some people can, and then some are, they're going to deal with it their whole lives? No, it's a really important question. Thanks, Nate. Um, So you're not cured of it because it's based on memories, right? So, um, and the memories are not going to go away, but what happens is, is you get to a place like what I refer to uh, the chapter of my life that I'm in post-traumatic growth, which is to say, yeah, I have PTSD. I'll have PTSD for the rest of my life. Um, But the difference is, is it's, it's a lot like my knee injury, right? Like I know how to manage it. So like, you know, I got that surgery 20 plus years ago, but you know, Last night I played a double header of uh, actual baseball, not softball in my, you know, and like I play over 30 wood bat baseball with guys who played in the minors, guys who played college. And like, I hang in there and I play center field. I run all over the place. And today I got to ice my knee, but I can play again tonight. Right. And that's, that's the thing is like with PTSD, it's like, Hey, I know that I have PTSD. I know that every couple of weeks now I might, I might have a nightmare, but I know that the, the difference now is before I was like, Oh, I'm going to suppress all these memories and try and distract myself from all these thoughts. And then what happened is my subconscious would be like, well, we're going to deal with this while your guard is down. Now I understand, Oh, that's happening because I'm not processing those feelings and emotions during the day. So I just, I deal with them during the day. Sometimes it's as simple as, I'll, I'll watch a war movie that I might've avoided before, right? Because that allows my brain to process those feelings or I'll, you know, talk to a buddy from my service or whatever. Uh, you know, and there's other symptoms I have that I just know how to deal with. Like for instance, um, one of the things I struggle with, and we talked about it a little before is I, I hypervigilance is one of my symptoms, like feeling like I'm in danger. My family's in danger when they're really not. So, you know, for me, that's just remembering, that that's not me that believes that that's not like a, an actual thing happening, that that is PTSD making me feel like I'm in danger when I'm not. And then I, I just have to sort of remember that for a moment and I'm okay. And so, you know, there are parts of it that are more difficult. I mean, I try really hard to um, meditate somewhat often. I should do it more. Um, the big thing for me really is uh, my physical health and mental health are really connected. So uh, I try and move my body every day. I try and exercise every day. Uh, and that really, that really helps me a lot. Um, but there's nothing I can't do. Like I might run for president one day. I don't know. I don't say that because I'm trying to like preserve a political opportunity for me. I say it because I want people listening to this to understand, like if this dude's saying he has PTSD and he could be president, well, clearly I can hire somebody into a management position with PTSD, right? Like I want people to understand that if you, if you've had treatment, there's no limit to what you can do. You just got to manage that like anything else. And what happens is you go to therapy and you learn the tools and then you come to a place where you've dealt with the underlying trauma and you're not cured, but the PTSD is no longer disruptive to your life. You know, you can manage it and move forward like any other injury that actually you just answered what my next question was is do you think that you would be accepted by the people if you were to run for any office before i mean it's all about digging up those skeletons right well your skeleton is not really a skeleton it's hey look i suffer from ptsd uh 
put me in charge. Cause you know, you're going to have people say, Oh dude, what if you lose it? And, and you're in charge. There's yeah. no way I'm putting you in office. It's not going to happen. So that's entirely possible. I mean, that's one of the things I had to think about when I wrote this book, right? It's like, I've written, I've written a memoir, unlike any memoir written by poet, by anybody who's ever been a politician in the sense that there, there are many parts where you read this book where I don't come off that well, which is not the way a political memoir usually works. Right. And, uh, and I did that understanding that it's possible that writing a book like this and, you know, explaining everything that uh, goes on with me and has gone on with me uh, might close off the opportunity to run for something one day. But I figure, you know what, if that's the case, the, public service that I can provide with this book is worth it. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to make that sacrifice. Now that said, yeah, like if I ever run for president or mayor or whatever, chances are there's going to be somebody who uh, comes out and says, look, this guy's crazy. <laughs> you can't elect this guy. Right. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know how that would go. Uh, I'm okay with it if that means it never happens. Um, but I guess to me, the one thing I'd say about it is, and probably what I would say if someone were to throw that at me is look, there's people walking all over the place, uh, all over the earth, all the time who are dealing with stuff. I mean, I've heard from so many people since coming out about my mental health issues that I, I can walk into any room and know like at least half the people in here are dealing with something. Mm. Uh, and the half that aren't somebody in their family is, and that's affecting them. And so I figure we got an awful lot of people in public office all the time who haven't dealt with their stuff. I guess my answer, if that ever happens would be, you know, I'd rather have people who have dealt with their stuff. Right. Uh, you don't. So you, that would you, be my argument. You don't want to get into politics. It's 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 bad. It's you I'm having an awful lot of fun not doing it right now. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I was I'm gonna I'm, say you don't want to do that. That's yeah. A, it's just so ugly. It doesn't look enjoyable. So I don't know if uh, y'all remember, but years ago when Jason was in his in doing politics, he had this ad that that went viral. Um, where because uh, he is uh, a very pro stricter background checks on guns, as I agree with you on that. And I'm like you, a gun owner, um, which is a whole other conversation. But so he does this 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 ad, uh, this commercial where he's blindfolded and he takes apart an AR-15 and puts it back together and then challenges the guy that he's running against in Kansas City. I dare you to do it. And, and I'm watching it. So when I was Googling you and, and, and doing my research, I end up on uh, this guy from years ago on Fox News that is uh, trying to beat you up on this ad. And he's got this this table of four different people, you know, that lean right. And they, and they, and they all got your back. They're like they made this guy look completely stupid because he was trying to take shots and make fun of you. And they're like, no, um, actually, he, he covered every point. I thought it was very well done. He made a lot of sense. And I'd never seen somebody that had an angle not be able to provide the angle on their own show as everybody turned heel against them. It was hilarious. Yeah, no, I remember that clip. That was a funny one. That was on The Five on, on Fox yes. News. And my favorite part of that clip was uh, where John Bolton, who was one of the panelists who yeah. ended up later being the national security advisor, and you could tell that he was trying to throw the host a bone because it was not going well. And he he, he theorized that maybe I could see through the blindfold. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, um, could have yeah, been a little bit more tougher with a handkerchief or something. Like, right. you, guys are, you guys are stretching. But I thought that was funny. And I thought it was a great commercial. Was that your idea? 
You're at, you're at, for the uh, sort of, yeah. What happened was, is, um, you know, the NRA was spending millions of dollars against me because I had, you know, said I wanted background checks. And, uh, and my ad guy, my media guy, we were just talking about it. And I was like, you know, I, I can, I can put a rifle together a lot faster than the other guy, I bet. And he, you know, cause I had trained on it and he said, he goes, can you do it blindfolded? And I was like, well, I mean, I've never tried. I said, but I, I cleaned my weapon in the dark a lot. I, probably. Yeah. And so he's like, well, let's try it. So I tried it and I did it. It wasn't, you know, wasn't much of a problem. The hard part actually for the ad was, um, I had to, you know, obviously you can't see a script. There's no teleprompter. So I had to memorize the script, but the harder part was I had to memorize the script and there's no soundtrack. There's no, it's all one take. And what we were trying to do was sort of make the soundtrack of the ad, the noise, the sounds of the weapon being assembled, Uh which meant I couldn't speak over any of those parts. So I had to practice assembling the rifle while timing my lines in between each part where it makes noise. And, uh, you know, and so I practiced a lot and eventually got it. I, I don't, I don't understand. And I, and I say this all the time. Uh, it's that if you're a responsible gun owner, I consider myself a responsible firearm owner and I'm very much pro firearm. I think you should own a firearm and, 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 you know, for whatever reason you, you want to own it, obviously within the law. But if you're a responsible firearm owner and you see what's happening in our country where people are getting shot and having guns that they should not have. Now, it's not 100 percent foolproof, right? But it's a step in the right direction. Why as a responsible firearm owner or even the NRA? Well, I know the NRA is just about money, but why would you not want it's making us look bad? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like bars, have, oh, bars have disclaimers yeah. that say drink responsibly. We'll give you water. Casinos have disclaimers. One eight hundred gambling problem, whatever it is. You know, you're telling people to get help if they have a problem. This is a problem. So why would you not want it as a responsible firearm owner? I don't understand it. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, look, a, a, a weapon is a tool. That's what it is. I mean, it's it's not, I mean, obviously it's not a toy, you know, it's not, it's not a recreation. I mean, it, for some people it is, but either way, it is a tool. It is a tool we, we use for something. And, and it's not like we don't take other tools seriously. Like if you're, if you're a, a roofer, like you don't just like leave your tools laying around for your kids to play with, you take care of them, right? Like you maintain your tools, you, you know, you take pride in the idea that you do, um, you know, like ball players don't leave their glove out in the rain you know like you you take care of your stuff and you take it seriously so i completely agree i I think one of the least talked about or at least under under discussed um subjects when this uh when we talk about guns is this law that was passed um over 20 years ago that exempted gun companies from all of the normal uh liability rules uh for you know anybody who makes a product right so like when you think about where we are now with cigarettes for instance um there was no special law that was passed to allow people to sue tobacco companies to say hey you are misleading people about this product right but what ended up happening was is that people were able to bring lawsuits under the regular standard of care like any other product like cars like anything else and tobacco companies had to adjust. They had to do things differently. They had to take a different standard of care. And we've passed a law that says that no jury anywhere uh, is empowered to say to a gun company, hey, you you should have taken some reasonable steps to say, hey, um, this, this gun shop seems to be selling to everybody without executing background checks or, you know, reasonable steps to say, hey, maybe our product isn't uh, you know, safe for people who are under 21 who haven't undergone a background check, right? So 
what we're doing is we're trying to have this big debate about whether the government should step in and make new rules, when in reality, if we just treated gun companies the way we treat every other manufacturer of a product in this country, well, juries would come together and they would help set those standards of care uh, for firearm manufacturers, just like they do, you know, for, for vehicles. I mean, we had a problem several years ago where Ford Explorers tended to roll over on people. Yeah. Well, they don't do that anymore, and it's not because a law was passed by Congress. It's because they were treated like any other product and juries said, hey, you have to fix this in order to keep putting this product out there. Yeah. And, and, and you would think that uh, businesses would back that play. You know, we just had the, the big ruffle the feathers here in Georgia with a big festival that's been happening for decades. And uh, the people, the guy in particular that I know, you know, they shut it down because of the, the, the new laws that have been passed where, and there was one guy in particular who wasn't even going to the festival. He was just arguing that I can bring my gun to this private land uh, or public land, even though it's a private event. And they're like, okay, well, if that's the case and that's the law, we're not going to have the event. And they shut it down. So everybody has to suffer. So you would think if something happens at any event, the business putting on the event is now liable versus the gun manufacturer, right? Yeah. I mean, look, man, I mean, even beyond business, like we are, we are inflicting a trauma upon our citizens with this. I mean, you know, next July 4th, are we all going to be as uh, comfortable going to a July 4th parade as, as we would have been in past years? We're not. And, and so, you know, we talked about hypervigilance earlier. Like one of the big things I had to work on uh, was being able to like sit in a restaurant without uh, facing the door. Right. But, you know, I don't think at this point you have to have gone to Afghanistan to feel that way. Right. Mm-hmm. With with how, you know, sporadically traumatic American life is. And it's because we uh, we absolutely refuse to um, actually regulate a tool correctly. Yeah, it's, it's, it seems kind of silly. Nate, do you have any more questions for Jason? Yeah. Um, was there anything that you, when you were, when you found out you had PTSD and you were kind of trying to cope with it, did you end up turning to anything, alcohol or drugs or anything like that? Or were you just kind of dealing with it in your own head? Um, you know, before I realized that I had PTSD, um, I actually think that the substance that I turned to was my career. I mean, I, I self-medicated by throwing myself into my work and into my profession and I, I try really hard in the book to to talk about that in a way that makes clear to people that that doesn't that, that doesn't make me better than somebody who turned to cocaine or to alcohol. Right. It's that's what was in front of me. That's what was available to me. And I'm fortunate that something that was you know, less harmful to me in the long term is what was in front of me and what was available to me. Um, but it doesn't make me any different or any better, right? Like I was in politics uh, for the right reasons, but I, I, I went after it at the breakneck pace that I did. I think in part because I was, I was searching for some kind of redemption, uh, you know, because, which is common to trauma survivors, but also because I just couldn't, I couldn't be alone with myself and my own thoughts. And so I, I really think that's what it was for me. Um, and, uh, and so I, you know, I say that to say that there are people listening to this who are like, okay, but you know, I, I use drugs or I, I drink too much and, and they want to judge themselves as, you know, why, why didn't Cantor do that? But I did. Well, that's probably what I would have done if I just hadn't happened to have this career in front of me that, uh, scratched that itch. Do you have a story, one in particular, I'm sure you have many, 
of somebody suffering from PTSD, but hearing you speak, hearing your story, seeing your story uh, really saved their lives or their life? Yeah, you know, I'm really blessed to almost every day I hear from somebody um, like that. Uh, For me, one of the very first things was um, before I'd ever written the book, you know, when I made my announcement, um, you know, I heard from thousands of people, but the first person I ever met who, you know, just was like, this saved my life was, it was several months after I uh, had made my announcement. I actually gave my very first speech uh, after my very first like public appearance. And it, it was, uh, about eight months later, which was a big deal for me because I, I, you know, I had been given speeches like five a day for years, and then I just checked out of everything in order to go get help. And then I was I was invited to come speak at a regional uh, VA mental health conference, like for therapists and stuff. And they actually uh, had a guy there who they introduced me to on stage, who spoke a little bit, who said that um, he uh, was retired Air Force and he had been a school superintendent. So he'd had a, a very successful career after, after the Air Force. But after he retired from being a school superintendent and he wasn't so busy, he was having a lot of these problems. And it was right around the time that I made my announcement and he actually had been suicidal. You know, this was a guy with kids and everything. And, and, uh, and so he got up in front of this crowd and uh, his name is uh, Chuck Fox. He's actually uh, the fifth blurb on the back of my book. Um, and he got up in front of this crowd and he told people that had that not happened, he would have killed himself, that that mm. gave him license to go get help. And, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough to hear that often from people. And I wish I wish that for everybody. I wish that everybody who had made the choice to address their mental health had that kind of affirmation, you know, that I'm fortunate enough to get. But the thing is, is that in this day and age, we all live public lives to some degree, right? Like if you're even on social media, you're living a public life. And even if you're not, uh, you know, if all you got is five coworkers who you see on a regular basis, you know, chances are one of them needs help and hasn't gotten it. And so if you decide to get help and you are open with them, let alone open publicly about getting help, you might give them the permission slip they feel they need to go get help. You might save their life. So this stuff is in a good way contagious. Yeah, that is a good thing. Uh, Nikki D, who is also a veteran, she served in the Uh Navy. Uh, Do you have any more questions for Jason? Um, I just kind of wanted to highlight something I've heard you say throughout the interview, which PTSD is not a military quote unquote disease, which a lot of people gets misconstrued. And so I've had a lot of women that I personally know that have PTSD from traumas that they have suffered in life. So I just love the fact that you're able to highlight that to people. And in your book, um, is there any resources that you give for people that aren't in the military to get help that also have PTSD? because now they've recognized it from reading your book? Yeah, no, th- first of all, thanks for your service. What would you do in the Navy? Put out fires with a hose. Oh, sorry, go ahead. He's asking you. <laughs> all right, cool. No, no, go ahead. Ask no I, was actually, I started off as a police officer, and then I transferred huh. over to a personnel man. All right, cool. Yes. Okay, um, well, thanks for your service. Um, yeah, uh, you know, what I talk about a lot in the book, I talk, I do talk about, obviously, the resources for veterans. And, in fact, the royal, my royalties from the book go to the fight against veteran suicide and veteran homelessness. But um, I, I also just talk about the importance of if, you, if you're struggling, just finding a therapist, you know, getting started with it. And, and one of the things I try to do in the book, like the whole third act of the book is, is me having recognized that I need help and uh, going to get treatment. So I actually take people inside my therapy sessions. I went and I got from the VA all of my therapist notes 
Um, and so they're in the book. And I, I did that because I thought the best thing I could do for veterans and non-veterans alike is to make therapy more accessible. Because before I went to therapy, like, I had no idea what it was. I had a lot of preconceived notions that weren't correct. And so I, I tried really hard to bring people into that and let them go on that journey with me uh, as I as I got better um, so that it feels much uh, more approachable to them and much more accessible. How come when we talk about what you did in the, the, in the Navy, it's like you said that you put out fires and it was a big deal. That was one of the things that I did. You guys are too busy trying to rag on me that you don't know all the things that I've done. I went to Iraq twice. Thank you. I am not. I I do not rag on you for your service. I (laughs) like to discuss the fact that you were a, a hose woman. That was Jason not my asked job. You and you're like, oh, personal listen, I just got classified documents in my sleeve. And I told you just the other day I had a security clearance. Got you all didn't serious. Hear it. Got all serious. Well, Nikki, I'm guessing that uh, a lot of people in the Navy are fortunate enough to be taught how to fight fires because fire is like a pretty big deal on a ship. Exactly. And um, we're in the middle yeah. of the ocean. We can't call the fire department. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so everybody's, everybody's a firefighter in the Navy, I think. And, uh, yes. Um, they called me. Yeah, well, anyway, welcome home. <laughs> now that I know you went to Rack, I'll say welcome home. Uh, real quick before we let you go, Jason, how'd this uh, guy in Kansas City do after you bailed out? Uh, the, the, the story I told a minute ago? The, well, the mayor. The, the, the mayor, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. After I had it, had it, oh, how's the mayor doing? Yeah. Uh, look, I think Mayor Lucas is doing a great job. Okay. Um, I've known him a long time. One of the funny things about running for mayor is, is that, you know, you were just running against a bunch of people you know well, right? Because, like, you, you, no matter how big the town is, I mean, if you've been been involved in politics in a town, uh, you know everybody else who's been involved in politics, right? And so, um, I liked everybody uh, that was in the race, and and I and I like I liked Quentin, and I still like Quentin. And man, he talk about a tough time to be mayor. Pandemic, you know, a civil unrest, uh, everything. Um, and the funny thing is, it started with like his first few months, the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, and it just seemed like I'm going to have the most fun term ever. Mm-hmm. And then everything happened, and I I do think he has handled it tremendously. I'm a I'm a big fan of the way he's handled things. See, that's good. That's what we need more of, right? And we need more of people saying. Hey, look, we might disagree on a few things because we're different parties. I hate the party system. Hate it, hate it, hate it. I mean, we talk about not wanting to divide in this com- uh, this country, but all we are is divided because there's like one side or the other. And for you to say that about a guy that you were running against is great. I wish more people would say that in politics. Like, look, he might not believe what I believe in, but I get where he's coming from. I need to kind of see where he's coming from as he needs to see where I'm coming from so we can hit that happy medium for the people. Well, I, I agree, but I don't want to give myself too much credit. Quentin and I are members of the same party. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and, but that said, um, I, you know, I do have a relationship like I, you know, I would even maybe call it a little bit of a friendship with the guy I ran against for U.S. Senate, who's a Republican. Um, We still disagree on everything. Um, But, you know, uh, he's been somebody who has. Uh, I would I would give him credit has always pushed uh, mental health uh, policy as something that's really important. And he and I have had great conversations about that. Roy Blunt. Um, So, you know, like I wouldn't vote for Roy, but I like Roy uh, personally. um, And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I do think that's important. I mean, my whole my podcast, Majority 54, the whole show is just a it's a progressive point of view that we have. But it's about how do we get more people to be progressive 
by having civil conversations with people in our lives and not losing those relationships. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that's something we believe in as well. I've got an answer for you. They need to, in Washington, in every place, these politicians meet up right there on the floor. You need to have a bar and a, and a pizza place because <laughs> yeah. pizza and beer brings everybody together and makes everybody. You know how many big deals over historically have been done over pizza and beer? A lot. You know, think about yeah. it. If you were to say, hey, look, man, you and I are down to the last two votes on this. Let's go discuss. Let's let's go grab a beer. You have a beer after the beer. You guys have to, you can't argue over the beer. It's just, I certainly don't think it would hurt. I would add uh, that I I would like it if we had more people in office from both sides of the aisle who had, you know, they don't have to be a a veteran, but had been through something in their life harder than a campaign. Because I think one of the things we struggle with is when, when the hardest thing that something that someone has ever been through uh, is the campaign that put them in office, they will act as though the worst thing that could ever happen to them is losing the job. And that makes it a lot harder to do the job. Well, I've always said that I think that the president of the United States of America should have served. You know, I think it could be that it could be just having gone through some stuff. Right. I mean, like having been a teacher, but, you know, served in some capacity or faced adversity. I mean, I'll say this, you know, for President Biden and, you know, look, he and I are same party. We don't agree on stuff all the time. But like that's a guy who's faced down a lot of adversity in his life. And I do think that that um, that builds character and it makes for better leaders. But, you you know, every I'm sure every president has faced adversity, you know, and, and, and even Trump could say, I mean, when he went bankrupt, that's adversity, yeah. you know, so everybody's faced some type of adversity. It just depends on what level of adversity. Sure. I mean, when you get divorced, how many times has a man been divorced? Like three or four times? That's adversity. You know, I mean, it depends yeah. on what Particularly you, for right. wives. Exactly. Um, but you know, so but I think, it's adversity, though, but it's what tier of adversity yeah. are you are you looking for? That's that. You know, look, I guess that's fair. Uh, I I think, I guess it's how you respond to it, right? Like I feel like, um, and I'm not trying to like get into a Trump versus Biden thing, but if we're going to compare the two, I feel like, you know, the tragedies that President Biden um, has seen in his life, I feel like he's come out of them with a greater degree of empathy for others. That's been his reaction to them. Yeah. And and I feel like President Trump's reaction to you know those things in his life has been like, I'm amazing. And everybody should just do what I did, you know, and and I feel like, you know, that's less helpful. I also think to your point, though, about folks serving, I think it is important. I think it's helpful if folks have served. But I also think um, that to have been part of a military family to, uh, you know, and that is something I will say for the Bidens, you know, is that Bo deployed to Iraq. And and I, I do like knowing that there's somebody making decisions about serving, about sending people overseas who has had the anguish of sending a child overseas and, you know, I, I do think that there's value in that. I also, one of my stipulations when I vote for president is I look at that person and I ask, if I were to meet them one-on-one and say, do, who do you work for? And their answer is me. Then I'd vote for them. But I don't know how many people uh, will, will say that. Like, I think Bush, yeah. I think Bush would have said that. I don't think Clinton would have said that. I think Obama would have said that. Uh, I think Biden would say that. Uh, I don't think Trump definitely would not say that. You know, so it's like that's kind of the, you know, you do understand that I pay your salary. I you work for me. That's your job. 
and and they lose sight of it. I think they're all good enough politicians. They would probably say it. I don't. It, but it's harder to know. Well, but <laughs> it's harder know, to know who believes it, right? I know, Jason. I know. I can look them in the eyes. All right. Yeah, uh, yeah. We've taken so much of your time, and I appreciate it. I hope we've helped out people that are thinking that they might have PTSD. If you know that you have PTSD, I hope you're helped out as well. Uh, the book, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your time. And please, if you'd like to come back on, we'd love to have you. Absolutely. Hey, I enjoyed this. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Jason. Take care, buddy.